The Future Sport Podcast is brought to you by 3Advance, developers of sports tech apps that are AI-powered and UX-focused. So if you're looking to create some apps for your startup or your sports biz calls for some artificial or business intelligence, you should check out 3Advance. They're incredible. Go to 3Advance.com. That's the number 3Advance.com. Empire. Let's think about those fun, non-social distancing times. What that did was that created a lot of small businesses starting up, playing around with different fabrics and different fillings inside the cornhole bag. So we basically set the specs, we approved bags similar to, let's say, how a bowling ball would be approved. That's Stacy Moore. He's the commissioner of the American Cornhole League on innovation. Yes, innovation in one of the most simple yet popular games. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. We are not trying to diminish what is happening in the world right now. In fact, we hope to use this forum over the next few weeks or months to shed some light on innovation in the health sector as we all cope and deal with the spread of the coronavirus. This is not a strictly stick to sports medium, but with distraction in mind as we all hunker down somewhere, I thought it would be proper to try to get your mind on a happier time, like when my family sets up our cornhole boards on the beach. And Stacy Moore will surprise you with how innovative the sport of cornhole has and will become. Plus, the NFL is moving forward with their league year, albeit remotely. So let's start with Mike Band, analyst of Next Gen Stats with the league, as the future is now with them being our sole focus in sports coverage. So the NFL Combine is behind us, and the NFL Draft, which is one of the major events of the sporting calendar, is on its way. So let's check in on the future of finding the next big stars of the NFL with Mike Band, who wrote a very interesting piece saying, Next Gen Stats draft model can predict a prospect's pro success. He's a Next Gen Stats analyst with the NFL. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Brent. Um, why don't we talk about just generally what you're doing there for the NFL? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm part of the Next Gen Stats uh, data science team. Our primary goal is to really uh, better understand and, and, and really disseminate uh, player tracking data at the, at the NFL level. So we've been collecting tracking data for the last four years. Uh, and we use that data for media purposes, and then the clubs also ha use that data to really Im improve their decision-making across all aspects. This draft model uh, is our first uh, exploration into non-tracking data analytics, and what this model truly tries to represent is can we use the data collected at the combine, data collected at the college level for, as far as production, and can we predict NFL success? Outside of, obviously, injury, which is the one thing that you cannot account for here, right? Absolutely. And that is something that, uh, that could be predicted in terms of uh, if you were to have extensive medical reports and uh, 
you know, tracking data at the college level that could be then transferred into the uh, football level. But as far as injury detection, that's still very early on uh, in its predictability. All right. So where you are in this process at this point, um, do you know what level of success you've had in using these models to predict some of the most recent players that have entered the league? Sure. So uh, what we use the model, we took the 2019 class and uh, put it through the model and, and analyzed the results. And it was interesting. What we found was, uh, this is probably our, our, our best stat to, to encompass this, of the 13 players that scored a 92 or higher in our final draft score model, all 13 started at least four games during the rookie season this past NFL season. So it, it, it does have a level of predict, predictability. Um, at the same time, it is more of a directional indication. So if you have a high score, that's, that's good enough. If you have a low score, it's more of a risk. So it really is identifying players with blue traits and identifying players who have potential risk, uh, risky metrics that would lead to less likely chance of success i'm far listen i'm far from the naysayer here i'm behind all this stuff but just for context and out of curiosity and i'm putting you on the spot with the players that you modeled that that are actually playing how many of them were early round picks because as you know there is pressure on teams to play those guys early as well certainly absolutely so there were uh, a bunch of players that made the cut of that 92 or higher uh, that were later round picks so for example Juan Thornhill, the chief safety, uh, who made a big impact. Uh, uh, Montez Sweat, who went a little bit later in the first round. Uh, Debo Samuel in the second round for, uh, for the 49ers. He was on this list. Uh, Marquise Brown, the receiver for the Ravens. Uh, he had a big year as far as uh, being a productive deep threat for Lamar Jackson and company. Jamel Dean, the cornerback from Auburn, who made a big impact uh, with the Buccaneers this season. So it's not just the top-level guys that made this impact. And while our model does identify that several of those top guys do possess those elite traits, it really does help you identify not just the gems, but some of those late-round studs that you can potentially find with analytical research and analytical help. All right, I know I'm going to be heading down the proprietary part of this, but I am curious what of the the traits of these players stick out to you as the benchmarks for that person is likely to have a very successful career? Yeah, I would actually like to, to describe what the model tries to do because you yeah. hit it right on the head, the benchmarks, the thresholds. So in, if, if this were to be, not to get too technical, but if this were to be a linear model, that would indicate that for every increase in speed, you would have an increase in output. But what we know from, uh, from just the theory of football and just the theory of understanding this combine data, the relationship between these metrics and the output is nonlinear. We know that being fast is good, but you might have to be just fast enough. You might have to be just big enough. And once you meet those thresholds, there is no marginal uh, improvement or gain by, uh, by being faster or being uh, bigger than those necessary thresholds. So if we were to talk about running backs, we look at the key traits from the position. Three-cone drill is a very important drill. Uh, it, the main key threshold is under 717 in the three-cone drill. So if you make that threshold, you are likely to, uh, or, or at least that metric indicates that that is not necessarily a risky proposition. 
On the other end, if you run faster than a 6.8 flat, that's a, another indicator of uh, future success. Similarly, when we look at 40 time, if you, if you have a running back that runs a 4.5 versus a 4.6, there really isn't that big marginal difference. It's when a running back runs slower than 4.71, you sort of understand this risk. So the idea is really to identify these thresholds to really home in on players that meet the thresholds versus do not meet thresholds and then allow the scouting process to sort them out as far as breaking ties on the draft board. So really this is just a, uh, it's a support, not replace of the traditional scouting process. So you're doing this um, with the NFL as a whole. Um, I would imagine the teams want this information. So how do you kind of balance that part of it? The teams have a unique data set in that their scouts are going out and working essentially as private investigators. They're collecting uh, an exorbitant amount of information beyond just what we see in the media. Uh, so at the combine, they test. Uh, they have incredible amounts of tests that we don't see the results of. Flexibility, uh, heart rate, uh, fat-free mass, all these different metrics that the teams have that we don't necessarily have to use as inputs. So when you talk about the ability for a team to create a model and to identify these thresholds, they're going to have a bigger breadth of data. From our standpoint, we just want to measure against the league average. What does it take to be a starter in this league? What does it take to be a pro bowler in this league? But when you look at a team, they're going to want to model around what fits their system, what fits their defense, what fits their offensive line. So it's going to be a little bit of a unique problem uh, for a team that would differ necessarily from, from, uh, from our model. The, the cool part about it all is that teams will start to get into this habit of, of trying to collect all this information, put it into a model and identify those key traits and those key thresholds. It's just they're the only ones with the breadth of data that could probably predict down to uh, or at least using all of the key factors beyond just athleticism, production, and size. They've got psychological data. They've got measurements. They've got biographical. So it's really uh, the teams that can find a way to, to replicate this type of modeling will naturally have an advantage come draft day. So um, the purpose of this data f for you is – to disseminate it how and for who? The fan? The fan, yes. That is uh, the, in, the early initiative. So really, the combine can be a little bit of an overwhelming process. We see the 40 times. We see, we hear, uh, you know, Daniel Jeremiah and Rich Eisen talk about these players. And can we encapsulate that combine performance into a single score? That's the best, that's the best use case of what we can do. Can you describe this player? How athletic is a player based off of all of their traits? So the idea is, can we represent the collection of traits into a single score from 50 to 99? And the idea is, can we simply say that this guy is an elite athlete, this guy is a below-average athlete, this guy is an elite, uh, had elite production at the college level? And really, putting all those things together, you can tell a pretty fun story uh, for, for fans and, and for the media of uh, of the results of this model. I mean, listen, I, I'm a fan of the NFL draft. I've been watching it forever. It's like a national holiday to me to watch the NFL draft. But part of the fun part is the 
when whoever the analyst is says someone made a reach or and you guys are actually now putting data behind it to suggest there are some teams that might be making big mistakes too so there is the other side of that as well no doubt and we certainly like to take more of a positive stance in our yeah. analysis but there definitely is that layer of uh, can you identify the teams that are making sound analytical decisions uh, whether or not our model enca- encapsulates the stuff, the intangibles that aren't necessarily quantifiable from the data that we have. That's really what separates uh, the usability from our model to necessarily for an NFL team on draft day. Um, I've talked to a lot of people about analytics across a number of different sports, and I will ask you this too, because you do have a background of having worked in a scouting department in in the NFL. Um, Do you think all of this information at some point eliminates the need for human scouts? Oh, I would never say that. Uh, that's probably that's one of the early things that I would ever uh, say to a traditional football coach, scout, front office executive is that we're trying to support the evaluation process, not replace it. It's the idea of almost like uh, the game of minesweeper. You want to avoid landmines by making sound decisions and improving the decision-making process. You want to use numbers to guide you. But in the end, it's still going to come down to the information collected by scouts, the film grades, the film analysis, all of those traits, all of the things that you can't necessarily quantify or we can't necessarily quantify yet, that's going to separate uh, a model like this from what scouts do uh, on a daily basis. Um, you know, the other thing that came out that I thought was really interesting recently, and it, it kind of made the news, was there were a few teams that did not send as much staff to the combine as they had in the past. Um, did you kind of read into it that, that what you would learn at the Combine is something that either the team has already already knows or already has? How did, how did you kind of read that news cycle that some teams were, were shying away from attending the Combine? Sure. So I think a lot of the Combine process comes down to are you a good enough athlete uh, as far as your measurables? These teams, they're sitting in the crowd, and they're not necessarily seeing the results uh, instantly. They're more just – trying to watch the drills, trying to uh, get to know these guys in the interview process, all of the drills are taped. So they're going to go back, watch their drills, uh, essentially see how their movement ability, how well they they bend their, you know, how well they bend, how well they uh, move their hips and, and, and so on. So really it's, it comes down to the interview process would be the reason why teams have to be there in terms of, you know, uh, using the allotted time to get to know uh, some of these prospects uh, as people, uh, because really that's what it takes. That's what the evaluation process is: is painting the full picture. The combine measurables itself, there's, those are going to be shared and disseminated through all the teams, and so it's not necessarily vital for uh, for the teams to send their full contingent of staff. Uh, but it is valuable to learn and dig deeper into these players uh, and to find those uh, answers to the questions that you had. Uh, from initial draft meetings. All right, I'll let you go with this. Um, you know, listen, I'm a huge football fan. I've been watching the games forever. I like to think that I, you know, have some stock in my team and, and who I think they should pick with their selection. And, and you clearly have lived it in a very different way. And you have a lot of information to back up your opinions. Um, how has your opinion of what a successful football player is changed through the use of all these analytics through the years? Going back to what I was saying earlier, uh, this, this idea of thresholds, uh, meeting this, meeting minimums are, are crucial. So 
again, you don't have to be the fastest player. When they showed the, the fastest 40 times of the last 10 years during the combine, about eight of those 10 names probably didn't uh, start a game at the NFL level. So it's not necessarily about being the fastest. You don't have to be the smartest. You don't have to be the biggest. But you do have to be fast enough. You do have to be big enough. And you do have to be smart enough. And when you put it all together, all of these metrics are trying to do is, is really identify whether or not a player uh, possesses those key traits or whether or not they're a risk. And over time, I think as we better, as we better understand how we can quantify all of this stuff, you know, the model we used, uh, the XGBoost algorithm, is fairly new. It's only been around about four years. And this idea of trying to model and predict can go a, uh, a million different ways in terms of setting up the data, setting up the model and, and such. So two teams that could be uh, very deep into the analytical world can come out with two very different uh, outcomes or results or, or conclusions. So it is still in its infancy uh, of its application. There are certain teams that are trying to do it uh, to an effective level. There are other teams that really aren't doing much at all as far as the draft analytics. When it comes down to it, the more information you can collect uh, to guide not, necess- not necessarily just the modeling process, but for the decision-making uh, process, put it all together and you've got a more refined process. Mike Band is an analyst of the Next Gen's stats team with the NFL. Thank you so much for joining us, Mike. Thanks, Brent. Up next, Stacy Moore, commissioner of the American Cornhole League, taking us back to simpler times when corn teams seemed like fiction. This is the Future Sport Podcast. So let's take a minute here to thank our friends at 3Advance. These guys are ranked one of the nation's top app developers, but that's not all. They've helped grow a bunch of sports tech startups like Team Builder, T-Box Tour, and In-Game Fantasy. But they're also experts in user experience, cloud APIs, and artificial intelligence. So if you're looking for a dev partner to bring your future sport tech to life, look these guys up. Go to 3advance.com. They're the team to make it happen. and advance, you will. That's the number 3advance.com. And tell them Future Sport sent you. Our guest this week is Stacy Moore. He is the commissioner of the American Cornhole League. It is a pleasure to have you here as someone who's been to a million tailgates, a million beaches, a million backyard parties, and played this game for the bulk of my life. Thanks for being here, Stacy. Thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here. You, sounds like you've had a lot more tailgating and fun activities than I have. Well, you know what, though? I think you're the lucky one. You're the one who gets to live your life playing this game, and you've made a living out of it. So I don't know how you made that happen. <laughs> I'm not quite sure yet either. So I'm still I'm still working at it. Um, unfortunately, I don't get to play much because I have so much work to do to grow this sport. Um, let's talk about where it was, where it is, what's been happening with the league itself. You have television deals with ESPN. There has been a lot of coverage of this. This has become more than just a game that is played by sports fans or outdoor enthusiasts who are looking for something to do. So can you kind of take us through the timeline of what has happened with Cornhole? Yeah, certainly. So, um, you know, similar to, uh, 
to what you said leading off. I, I started playing cornhole at tailgates. Um, I'm an NC State guy, so in the tailgate lots of Carter Finley Stadium is is where I started playing, and uh, you know, just playing casually and, and recreationally. And uh, I had a magazine called Inside Tailgating that covered the tailgating lifestyle. And as part of that, we were doing activations for sponsors with all kinds of different cornhole games. And one of the things that I saw from that was people were playing cornhole a lot more seriously than other tailgating games and a lot more seriously than I was playing cornhole. So so I watched it for a couple of years trying to figure out why that was learned that there was this uh, this group of really competitive players that were traveling around and seeking some some money tournaments and that sort of thing and got to know a little bit more about the strategy of the game and uh, and what was going on. And the more I watched it, the more I enjoyed it, seeing it being played at a competitive level and, and became convinced it could become a legitimate sport. So did you model this after anything like bowling or darts or billiards, or did you see this as something that would be unique? Um, no, certainly, I certainly took a lot from a, a lot of other leagues, like you mentioned. I think uh, bowling is, uh, is a sport that we took a lot from. Uh, tennis, I would say, is probably the, the primary influence because I grew up as a competitive tennis player. Um, so you'll see that we have like a self-rating system right now that's very similar to how people self-rate themselves uh, in tennis, um, how we do different skill level divisions and that sort of thing, um, and how we do some of our match play events. Uh, if you're familiar with like, how high school and college tennis works, um, we're, we're very similar when we create a team-oriented style event to where we have singles and doubles and a team event that are associated with that. So... Uh, tennis has been a big influence. Golf, uh, something that I've looked at pretty closely as well. So I would say between bowling, tennis, and golf, that those are the three top uh, sports that that I've gotten inspiration from. You guys have a digital network where you're profiling your athletes, the sport itself, the game itself. Um, where has been the success there? What What have you seen that has worked for you to get more outreach um, into the communities? Yeah, I think uh, one of one of our magic bullets on, along those lines has been the clips that come about our, out of our ESPN broadcasts. Because uh, it seems like we always get some kind of amazing shot, um, and because we have so many different camera angles around our linear broadcasts, uh, we end up being able to create some really cool uh, clips to put out in social media and on our digital network. Um, that will go viral. Um, so that's been really cool to see. And then the coverage that we're able to create outside of our broadcast events. Uh, so we've really invested in making that viewing experience on our digital platform a lot better. Uh, we took a major step here at our last national event uh, to do that, and it's been very well received. Uh, we saw a lot more a lot more views, a lot more stickiness to our digital broadcast on, on our digital network. Uh, here this past January. And with ESPN, um, obviously the deal gives the league a tremendous amount of exposure. As far as the broadcast goes, um, how did you kind of envision that working with them to put out the best version of the product? (laughs) Well, first, you know, we had to go through the process of convincing them to give it a shot, right? And uh, and so we, uh, 
you know, started out on ESPN3. We created a, a digital broadcast. Uh, we had kind of this vision that we wanted to be able to show this camera on top of the hole um, in a couple of different angles uh, from the initial broadcast. And I think that kind of that vision was, was really key out of the gate, and I think we got that part of it right. And then, um, you know, as we entered into our second championships, is when ESPN came back and said, hey, we saw – went back and looked at this broadcast that you did on your first championships, and we think that this might have a shot on ESPN2, and we have a slot here around your championships. Would you be interested in, in doing the live show on ESPN2? So we're obviously like, absolutely. <laughs> What's the difference between a linear and a digital broadcast? I yeah. have no idea. Um, so that was where we got into a, you know, a pretty, pretty healthy and beneficial uh, consultative conversation with producers at ESPN that were giving us feedback on you know, how they thought we could improve the viewing experience of our sport and things like that. So it's just been a great relationship getting that kind of feedback from them. Um, after we had our own vision, um, they've really helped us, I think, refine it here over the last couple of years and continue to make our broadcast better and better. You know, on this show, we follow closely innovation, and I'm very curious about your athletes, how they train. Um, are they using any kind of technology, wearable technology? Are they into anything like biomechanics at this point? Um, where do you see the future of training to be a professional in cornhole? In terms of, like, saying, like, how a golfer would use technology to train or a tennis player and those other sports, you know, like we kind of mentioned bowling even. Um, we're not quite there yet. I think we're in the very early stages of it where some of our players are starting to, to tinker around uh, with that, and we're starting to look at things like starting to analyze launch angles and motion similar to a golf swing and things like that. Um, so we're very early on in that in that process, but it's something that we're – we're definitely interested in and in aggressively you know, expanding on and growing and bringing to our sport. How about the boards and the bags themselves? Have they innovated over a period of time? And if so, how have they been innovated? Yeah, so I think that's probably the biggest evolution uh, from the game to a sport has been with the cornhole bag. Um, and part of that was spurned by the bring your own bag policy that we created and, uh, and was original to us and unique for the sport. And that, what that did was that created a lot of small businesses starting up, playing around with different fabrics and different fillings inside the cornhole bag. So we basically set the specs. We approve bags similar to, let's say, how a bowling ball would be approved. Uh, or a golf ball, something like that. And then you know, these these small manufacturers are trying to figure out how to one-up each other, how to create the next really cool bag that they think is going to give a player an advantage. So I'd like to say it kind of reminds me of of the uh, kind of Big Bertha golf club. <laughs> when the <laughs> Big Bertha came out with that driver, it was like everyone had to have one to try to compete. And so we're seeing that happen with cornhole bags. And once, you know, 
Big Bertha version number one comes out. So there's another bag manufacturer coming out with Big Bertha number two here pretty quickly. And and I guess you guys now have to really closely monitor what's going on here because you want to keep the competitions as fair as possible. Certainly, certainly. And so, uh, yeah, so right now what we're doing is we're approving bags on a uh, season-by-season basis. So that way, you know, mid-season, if there's a hot bag and – players don't have access to it you know then that could give players an advantage so we want to make sure that when new bags come out that there's enough inventory there to fill the demand uh, for our competitive players to be able to get access to that bag if, if they really want and as far as the boards go has anything changed over time with what they're made out of or any of that type of material yeah the board has been fairly steady and so um, you know, we haven't really changed the material that we use or, or how it planes or anything like that. Uh, we've pretty much had the almost the exact same um, ACL Pro board, you know, for the last three years or so. So that design hasn't changed a whole lot. There's been some tweaks here and there, but uh, nothing that I would call significant. I'll just, since we're on the boards for a moment, and since I play, and I know a lot of people that play, you should answer this question because there's a million boards you can buy. Which one should I buy? Right. Which one should I buy? What, what's the right one to play with if you're an amateur like me? Well, the ACL Pro Board is on allfornall.com. Yeah. So that's my answer. There. But like you said, there's obviously a lot of boards out there and board manufacturers, and we're, we're, we're actually introducing a, a, a line of boards um, so that we can educate people on, you know, the different – the different aspects or different types of boards, different levels, different quality. So we're launching an ACL rec line in Walmart here this spring. That will be a cheaper board. It's not something that we will use on television on ESPN, but it's a good quality board and it's great to put in your backyard and a great way to get started. Um, And then we'll have an ACL competitive line and then we have our ACL pro line. What is the pathway to someone becoming a professional or someone who could compete in your events? How, how does someone go about even doing that? So the best way is to get started with a local director, go out to a local tournament or a regional tournament. Um, if you really want to be bold, you can just come out to a national tournament, sign up to play at one of the skill-level divisions, and you know, jump in with both feet. But you could just do that? I could just show it. up? I could just show up and do that? You can just show up as long as there's space and registration. Like our Cleveland event, we sold out all of our skill level divisions in one and a half hours. So um, demand is pretty high for our nationals. But today we we have had it be uh, open registration for our national events um, for everything except for the pro level. Um, so you have to earn your way to become a pro through our point system. Uh, our point system runs year-round. So we have our championships in August. Our point system starts back up in September. And anyone can play in the advanced division. And if you finish top 32 in the advanced division in any given season, you're going to be a pro the next year. Um, one more question about the board for you. Um, you know, I've played the standard board or something close to it for, for years. Is there anything out there or that you envision that would have multiple holes in the board or an ability to move the location of the single hole in some way is is that something that is possible in the future with this yeah you know it's going to be it's going to be interesting to to kind of see how that goes um you know there's a lot of we we discuss that a lot um and there's no clear cut 
defined answer, I think, um, how the cornhole board is going to change or whether it's going to be the distance between the boards that changes over time. Um, we certainly see a lot of different boards out there, kind of different takes. We see boards that have multiple holes on them. Um, one of my favorite ones is the uh, the five-point slot that is on top of the hole. That's one that when I initially started, I thought that that was really cool. It's almost like making a you know a three-pointer in basketball. It's really hard to get it in that five-point slot. That's pretty challenging um, and, and a difficult to be really hard to kind of master that skill, I think. But, uh, yeah, so, we'll, I mean, we'll see. For now, I think the, uh, you know, the pro players and those top players uh, really like that consistency of that board and uh, like the fact that the bags are changing and they're trying some different shots and strategies evolving in a pretty cool way with how things are right now. All right, I'll let you go with this. I, I'm just curious at what the marketing plan is for how you're getting the word out about the league. I saw you did a special with the two New York uh, Giants and Jets quarterbacks, so you've got you've had an yep. opportunity to kind of you know mix in with them. I know you went to Barstool, which gives you access to a very large younger audience out there, and I'm sure they did it in their own unique way when they were working with you guys. Um, how do you envision kind of marketing? Will it be through other sports, other outlets? Do you, does the sport try to stand on its own? Like, what's the vision here with this? Yeah, I think uh, you know our vision out of the gate was um, to leverage our exposure here on ESPN primarily through PR efforts and trying to cross over with other sport and celebrity, um, you know, when and where we can. I think that's one of the unique sports about cornhole. I guess that you know golf would have some similarities where you have a lot of different uh, athletes that love playing golf. Uh, right, it's very similar cornhole. Um, so, like you mentioned, the Sam Darnold Daniel Jones event that we called Super Hole. You know that went really well. <laughs> so we Matt, we you know we're already planning Super Hole two for uh, <laughs> for next year uh, based on the success of that. Um, so certainly, I think integrating with other other sports, whether it be football, basketball, baseball, soccer, bowling, anything and everything out there, um, we want to be involved in. Right, listen, this is uh, one of my favorite interviews ever because I actually play this. So this was fun, Stacy. Thank you so much for coming on. Stacy Moore is the commissioner of the American Cornhole League. Thank you so much. Thanks, and I appreciate you playing. That will do it for us this week. Feel free to reach out to me directly should you have a business, a brand, or an initiative that is helping navigate this really unusual time in our history. My direct email can be found in the show notes, and I hope to hear from all of you. Be safe, and remember, the future still is now. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. The Future Sport Podcast is brought to you by 3Advance, developers of sports tech apps that are AI-powered and UX-focused. So if you're looking to create some apps for your startup or your sports biz calls for some artificial or business intelligence, you should check out 3Advance. They're incredible. Go to 3Advance.com. That's the number 3Advance.com.